Due to the graphic nature of the crime covered in this episode of Murder Most Foul, this episode is definitely being marked for mature audiences only. Welcome to Murder Most Foul, a podcast devoted to exploring famous murder cases of our time. Some solved, some unsolved, but all fascinating and guaranteed to raise the hairs on the back of your neck. I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. Today's episode, Awful Deed. An elderly woman, an insane daughter-in-law, a grisly murder, a true story. To Hell I Must Go is the true story of a deranged woman who some might refer to as Michigan's own Lizzie Borden. Written by Rod Sadler, a 30-year police veteran who spent over 10 years researching this gruesome 1897 murder that occurred in the small town where he spent his childhood. Using original court documents, handwritten eyewitness statements, and newspaper accounts, he has crafted an intriguing, detailed timeline of the murder and the five days that followed. Rod Sadler has been kind enough to join me via Skype from his home in Michigan. Greetings, Rod. Uh, Let's start by uh, uh, telling us a little bit about yourself. I served 30 years in law enforcement. Uh, Early on in my career, I was uh, an Ingham County deputy in mid-Michigan. Ingham County is where the state capital of Lansing is located, with several small other communities in in the county itself. And I worked for um, a small campus police department and we derived our police powers from the Ingham County Sheriff's Office. And so my dad always reminded me that my great great grandfather had been the sheriff in Ingham County in 1897. And I always thought that was kind of cool. And so I kind of wanted to do a little genealogy project and, and just learn as much as I could about my great great grandfather and what it was like for him as as the sheriff in 1897. My cousins had had uh, his badge and his gun and handcuffs that he had had when he was the sheriff and I had gotten to see those. Um, since that time I, I actually have come into possession of those. And how'd you come across this uh, particularly uh, gruesome case? I started uh, looking at the um, old newspapers in Mason, Michigan, at, at uh, where the Ingham County Sheriff's Office is, at the local library, they had all these old newspapers. And I began to go through those early in my police career, simply looking for articles that, that would mention my great-great-grandfather. And they didn't have to be crime articles. They Back then, they reported on everything. You know, um, Joe Smith went over and had had uh, tea at Miss Crumpets or whatever. Uh, but... 
but I came across an article uh, about uh, a vicious, vicious murder in the small town of Williamston. And that's the town that I actually grew up in. Uh, my dad was from. Um, I actually started my police career as a reserve police officer in Williamston, not knowing that this brutal murder had occurred at that time. Um, and incidentally, uh, as a side note to this whole thing, uh, the night that I graduated from the police academy, um, a friend of mine and I got together and he said, hey, why don't you stop over at, at my grandparents' house? And was there just for a short time, left. And later in my career, when I began researching the book and writing the book, realized that this particular crime had occurred in that very house that I had been in. So I found this uh, article uh, in the local newspapers. The title of the article was Awful Deed. It became evident that it was a very, very grisly murder um, that had occurred. And, of course, I saw my great-great-grandfather's name in, in the article. I thought this would make an interesting book. Literally, that was my exact thought. And I thought, I'm going to do that someday. So before we uh, get into the crime itself, uh, why don't you give us a little background of the town where it occurred? Um, we're now talking about the turn of the 19th century. So, of course, things were a little different back then. Uh, so, you know, give us a little picture of the town and then um, tell us about the murder. It occurred in April of 1897 uh, in the small town of Williamston. And Williamston at that time, maybe a thousand people. And that's purely a guess on my part, because when I was growing up in Williamston in the 1960s, I know that the population was about 2,000, maybe just a little bit more than that. Today, it's probably three, maybe 4,000. So it's it's still a, a bedroom community, if you will. Uh, it was um, uh, had just really established itself. Um, the railroad had been put through in the 1870s. Um, there was some some uh, industry in Williamston, the stave factory, where the, they would ship barrels all over the United States. Um, they made about, I think it was like 60,000 barrels a year. Um, that's a lot of barrels. And uh, that was actually located right next to where this crime was. They did have a town marshal who was a deputy appointed by my, my uh, great-great-grandfather. And in Williamston, along the railroad tracks near the uh, train depot, uh, was a, a shack, a small house. That home, um, I don't know if it was owned by the railroad or if it was owned by the city, but the people that lived there, the principals in this, in this uh, book, um, didn't own it. Um, while there wasn't any form of formal welfare back then, um, they lived off the system, if you will. Um, uh, an early welfare program. They lived off the village. And they lived there. It was uh, a gentleman by the name of Alfred Haney. He went by Alfie and his wife, Martha, and his mother, Mariah. She had an H at the end, so some people uh, pronounced it Maria. I pronounce it Mariah. And Martha and Mariah, um, for lack of a better term, uh, had a very contested relationship. And I think that may have been caused from maybe the economic times that they were 
uh, in the fact that Alfred literally would go out and find a job every day, have to find a job. Um, and the fact that, that Martha suffered from, I, I say in, insanity, let's just say that, that she suffered some emotional problems at this point. Um, because she hadn't been declared insane at that point. Um, she was a woman who had been previously married. She had three children, um, and they thought at one point that she may have murdered one of those children because she had disappeared with the child and came back a few days later without the child and never really said what happened to the child. But in my research, I was able to to uh, determine that she had given all three children up for adoption. And she had some emotional problems. She would um, occasionally speak in tongues she would uh, she would suffer from seizures. She would sing religious tunes just out of the blue, um, and everybody in town pretty much knew that that she had some problems. And she, if from again taking from the book, she had some communication um, in her mind with her mother who was dead. That's correct. She did. Her mother had died seven years before, and incidentally, her mother had died. Um, up in a town called Ionia, which was about an hour northwest of Lansing. And it's where the home for the criminally insane was located, which today, actually, that property is still owned by the Michigan um, Department of Corrections. It's called the Riverside Facility. And all of the old buildings and, and, and structures have been torn down, and that's where a prison is, is now located. But at the time, it was called the home for the criminally insane. And while... Martha's family was from the Williamston area. I was able to determine that her mother had passed away in Ionia, although because of privacy rights, um, I, I've not been able to determine if she was actually um, a resident of the Home for the Criminally Insane, but I suspect that may have been the case. So we've got uh, Martha and Mariah uh, in a volatile um, relationship. And uh, Alfie off most of the time, at least during the day, looking for work and doing work. And there is a, a day where this all blows up, which is, of course, uh, the day of the crime. That's correct. Um, what had happened was Alfred knew that, that Martha was in need of some attention, um, some medical help, because he recognized that for lack of a better term, she wasn't all there. Uh, I don't know how else to put it. Uh, and so he had literally had set up an appointment with the town doctor. And they were going to go on Friday. The night before, he had told her, uh, you know, we're going to see Doc so-and-so. And he's going to try to help you. And she was enraged at that. She didn't want to go. And so... What had happened was uh, the following morning when Alfred got up, um, Martha convinced him that she was fine, that there was no need to go see the doctor. She felt great. Uh, maybe they could do it another day. Uh, and so Alfred, knowing that, hey, I have to support her and my mother. I need to go out and find work. I'll take her tomorrow. It'll be a Saturday. The doc will be available. We'll put it off a day which was his mistake. Uh, so he left. He left. And Martha and Mariah are now at home by themselves. And Mariah begins to do some cleaning. 
and I don't know how she would ever clean the shack that they lived in, but that's what the, the articles have indicated. She began to clean, and Martha, um, in the living room, took down a picture frame off the wall that had a picture of Mariah's husband, who had passed several years earlier. He was a Civil War veteran, and so Martha took that picture out, ripped it out of the frame, and was going to put a picture of her children in there that she still had. And she she ripped it out, and Mariah was enraged at that. She was so upset. And they got into a, a pushing match, a shoving match. And somehow Mariah was able to push Martha out the front door of the house and lock the door. And next door, of course, was the stave factory. And the workers there were so used to, the, to Mariah and Martha going at it. You know, they were used to hearing the screaming, the back and forth. It was just another day at the Haney's. Um, they really didn't pay too much attention to it. So Martha is now locked outside the front of the house. So she goes around to the back of the house and she gets an axe. Not uh, a hatchet, right? Not a hatchet. She went Paul Bunyan. She's going to go Paul Bunyan. Yes. And uh, so she comes around to the front of the house and she begins to hack away at the front door to the shack. Well, I'm certain there probably wasn't much of a lock on it or anything, but she manages to bash this door in and gain entry into the house. And now it's her with the axe and Mariah face to face. And she takes that axe and she swings it at, at Mariah and she connects with her and knocks her down. And Mariah begins to scream murder, murder. Well, the guys at the stave factory, they hear that, but it's just another day at the Haney's. You know, they really, they don't, they don't give it a second thought. So in the meantime, Martha now with the axe, she's got her mother-in-law on the floor, takes another swing at her and basically chops off a piece of her scalp. And it's embedded in the floor. And the newspaper articles from 1897 describe that vividly that there's, there's hatchet marks in the floor, there's blood everywhere, there's gray hair stuck into the hatchet marks in the floor. Um, it's a gruesome scene. But Mariah's still alive. Uh, I have to tell you that I base this mostly on uh, my law enforcement experience, um, but I believe she was probably either unconscious at that point or quickly fading. And so I kind of described that, um, the labored breathing that someone would be going through, um, going into shock, things like that. And Martha, not to be done with the deed yet, decides, I'm going to finish the job. She is in her mind having a conversation with her deceased mother, and she proceeds to behead her mother-in-law right there in the living room chops her head right off. Um, I suspect that that the axe is not like a brand new sharp axe and and I know that unless you've got a, a razor sharp sword, 
you're not going to behead someone with one whack. Um, based on the, the newspaper articles, the descriptions of all the hack marks in the, in the wooden floor, I suspect three, maybe four times it took to, to behead her mother-in-law. It's not something that happens with one whack. Didn't Martha stomp on Mariah? She did. She did. And that came out in the interview at the jail. Um, but she did. She, after she had beheaded her, then she stomped on her chest several times. Uh, and that's a, a statement that she gave to the doctors at the jail. Um, so after she beheads her, um, this is the, the really bizarre part. Not, not that beheading your mother-in-law isn't bizarre. It isn't anything that I haven't thought about at least a couple times a day. Uh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so she takes her mother-in-law's head and, and, and I'm just going to tell you, uh, police, police officers, um, EMTs, firefighters, paramedics, will have a dark sense of humor. This is not a funny story, and so I, I make light of it in certain instances, but this is not a funny story. It's a very tragic story. Um, she takes her mother-in-law's head, and she carries it over to the kitchen table, and she puts it at her husband's place sitting on a plate, and then she puts a knife and a fork on either side of it. And she then, now try to imagine that scene, the blood everywhere, um, this poor woman's, uh, 85-year-old woman's head bruised, cut up. Um, so Martha then goes and, and grabs the headless corpse and drags it into the kitchen. And she then goes out into the living area and gets a kerosene lamp, brings it in, and pours kerosene all over this headless corpse. And then she gets in the oven and takes out a warm pan of coals and sets that between her mother-in-law's legs and so that the body begins to smolder. Um, she's basically set the body on fire. And um, it, it's about lunchtime, um, believe it or not. And about that time, Alfred is walking back home for lunch. And he gets to the front of the house and... Um, Misses the, misses the door that's been hacked off the hinge, walks in and imagine his surprise at what he sees. His mother's body, headless body, smoldering in the kitchen and her head set on a plate where he sits. It, can you even, I can't even begin to imagine that. And I've seen some of the worst in 30 years of law enforcement. I cannot imagine what, what he encountered. Um, he turns and he runs from the house, screaming, like anybody would. Um, next door at the state factory, the guys are uh, paying attention a little bit because they see some smoke start to come from the house, from the uh, windows, and they see Alfred run out screaming. They think Alfred's house is on fire. So they're going to go help him. They're going to go form a little bucket brigade, um, and they're going to start tossing water through the bedroom window. So they do. And one of the guys, John Robinson was his name, uh, he goes around to the front of the house and he goes in and imagine his surprise at what he's faced with. He sees the, the head on the plate, the blood everywhere, the corpse smoldering, realizes that's what 
what's causing the smoke. And he turns just as Martha comes from a bedroom in her undergarments, uh, what they call a union suit. And uh, they make eye contact, and he decides it's time to exit stage left. So he does. Uh, He goes for the law. He goes for the town marshal. And by the time they get back to the house, Martha is now in the backyard. She's digging wildly with her hands. And so the town town marshal goes up and and he places her under arrest um, and takes her down to the local um, city jail in Williamston. That building still exists. It's City Hall. And uh, the jail cells have long since been removed. It's all offices now. But um, and so they wire for the sheriff in Mason, my great great grandfather. And so he gets the the message and he has to take a train from Mason to Lansing and then get another train from Lansing out to Williamston has to switch trains. So it takes him a while to get there. And once he arrives, of course the house is only three, four, maybe 500 feet from the train depot. And it's the only house there next to the state factory. So they walk over the deputy and him and the deputy walks him through the, the crime scene. And, of course, he's appalled like anybody would be. Can you just imagine that? Um, I just, I can't. I can't. I just can't imagine it. Uh, but the law in Michigan in 1897 required that before the body could be moved, there had to be a coroner's inquest. And that basically was a, a quick meeting of six good and decent people from the town um, with the sheriff there uh, describing what had happened. And they had to make a determination whether or not there was evidence that a crime was committed and whether or not there was suspicion to believe that um, someone had committed that, a specific person. Well, I think it didn't take them long to realize that she didn't chop her own head off and set her own body on fire. So um, that hearing didn't take very long. And then the sheriff went down to um, the local jail where Martha was and asked to have a couple town doctors come and talk to her. So the town doctors come in and they said to Martha, did you kill your mother? And she said, oh yeah, I killed her. I chopped her head off. And then I stomped on her, stomped on her stomach. And they said, why did you do that? And she said, my mother told me to do it. She said, if I didn't kill her, she was going to kill me. And at that point, they knew they that she probably was insane. Um, and so uh, my great-great-grandfather loaded her up on the train, and she was taken back to the jail in Mason. Did she, aside from saying she did it, um, did she have any... Even, you know, the chopping of the head or, or whatever, did she say any other stuff while she was in jail, either to legal people, uh, uh, law enforcement, or to doctors that's documented? You know, I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. It's been so long since I've looked at the book, I cannot recall. I think the crux of her conversation was that she had done it, she admitted it, um, and that her mother had told her to do it. Um, and I, I honestly, I don't think there was much more than that. Now, 
I do. There is some reference to where the title came from of the book. Yes. Uh, interestingly enough, while she was in in the Ingham County Jail, uh, and oddly enough, the 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 mental health system back then was pretty much non-existent, if you will. Um, but she was in the jail. Uh, she was arraigned on the charges. Uh, and my great-great-grandfather was going to take her to Lansing, which is where the circuit court was, on Monday. So he had to deal with her in the jail, uh, which was very small, um, for the weekend. And so while she was in the jail, she would go into fits. She would have seizures. She would sing. It just, just something wasn't right. And originally, when, when I wrote this book, I thought, I need a good title. And I thought, maybe Head of the Table. Oh, oh, sorry, sorry. Cut that, cut that laugh out. Okay, fine. And on a more serious note, I was reading in one of the articles where she, would, uh, she began to sing a little song in jail. And the words were, I, I don't know what the tune was, but the words were, I can't go to heaven. To hell I must go. I murderers don't go to heaven, so that's where I must go. And as soon as I heard the word "to hell I must go," I thought that that's the perfect title for it. Yeah, and so that's where the title came from. Now, the other thing that again makes this kind of a very, in a sense, a quick ending, is that she basically went directly to Bedlam. There was not a trial. We didn't figure out if she was crazy, whatever the legal mechanism at that time was, she was just, you know, pass, go, don't collect $200 and went right to the insane asylum. Is that sort of what it was? Correct. Uh, what happened was that when she was taken before the judge in Lansing, um, he knew that she had some emotional problems, that she was likely insane based on what had happened. And so he appointed a panel of three doctors to, to weigh in on her sanity. And so they did uh, quick interviews with everybody, and um, they determined that she was insane. And so from the time the crime was committed at around lunchtime on a Friday, and she sat in jail Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday night, took her to Mason on Monday. By Tuesday, she had been declared insane. And my great-great-grandfather and great-great-grandmother um, put her on a train, and they took her up to the home uh, for the criminally insane in Ionia, where she ended up spending the rest of her short life. She was in a, a building, um, Building 5, at the home for the criminally insane, which is where the women were. Michigan has very strict laws um, today about releasing any information about um, inmates or um, mental health patients, uh, even if they're long since dead. Interesting side note to to the Mariah Haney or Martha Haney case. Uh, there was a guy in this small town of Williamston um, that kept a daily diary. He was a farmer, and every day he'd write down what he did. And the the town historians. Um, had that diary given to him, and so it happens to cover that day, and and it was it's so funny to read. It says um, 
April 27th, I think was the day, uh, starts out, um, uh, went to town, uh, bailed some hay, it rained a little, Martha Haney chopped off her mother's head, um, I went back home and had dinner, uh, just like, no big deal, just like, Martha Haney chopped off her mother's head, like, you would think, if he was going to write in his diary, it'd be all about that, but just like this little passage, it was so weird. Anything you want to say about your feelings about the case, you doing it, the contact with your with your uh, great grandfather, anything you'd just like to sum up? You know, honestly, I think that um, it's a it's a very sad case. Um, it illustrates the lack of mental health um, assistance back in the 1890s. Um, I've had people that have read the book and and they say, you know, I felt like I was right there. Like you did such a good, and I'm don't, don't take this the wrong way. I'm not pumping sunshine up my own skirt, if you will. Um, but they said, you did such a nice job describing the people and, and Williamston and, and the, the court system back then. And really it's a short book. It's only 175 pages. It's a, it's a one nighter, if you will. Um, but that to me meant a lot because that's the, I mean, when you're writing a book, you want people to, to submerge themselves in it, if you will. Um, and they seem to do that. And that made me feel pretty good. Well, listen, Rod, I do want to thank you uh, for taking the time to be with us today to uh, share your expertise on this um, rather ghoulish case. Um, I know you're writing other books, so uh, we'll probably come back to you again in the near future uh, to uh, pick your brain about other things going on in Michigan criminal law. In the meantime, again, thanks so much. And ladies and gents, don't forget the book, To Hell I Must Go, uh, by Rod Sadler. It's available at Amazon. And actually, I got my copy at the library. Imagine that. So once again, thanks a lot, Rod, and have a great day.